Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. One day I will share with you how many times I record and delete, record and delete the beginnings of every podcast episode I record. <laughs> like I record and then I'm just like, why would you start it like that? That's so corny. Or sometimes I'm like, good morning. And then I'm like, but what if you're listening to this at midnight or at midday? Like, <sighs> anyway, here we are. I am back from Dakar. Um, I spent the last week from Tuesday until Sunday 1 a.m. in Dakar, Senegal. And I did not realize how far Senegal is from Kenya. My God. So going means that I went with Kenya Airways. So we had to stop in Abidjan to refuel. That's how you know it's a long trip. And then from Abidjan to Dakar. And that entire trip took about nine hours. Yup. And then coming back, because I came with Ethiopian Airlines, um, we went and refueled in Mali and then landed in Ethiopia. That entire trip took like seven or so hours. And then I had another hour and 45 minutes from Addis to Nairobi. Yup. <laughs> I went to Dakar for the Africa Regional Meeting on the International Decade of People of African Descent. So this is something that was already running and they've had about two or so meetings, but not on the continent. This was the first one that they were having here in Africa, which is a big deal based on what they're talking about. And it really helped me. Did I just say and? <laughs> Accents. <laughs> and... It really helped me, no seriously, it helped me really understand, first and foremost, when it comes to people of African descent, it must be so hard for them to really call one place home, because the place that you are in now is because of your forefathers being forcefully ejected from the continent. And because you've not experienced the continent, you may ask yourself, am I even African enough? Do I have a right to claim that I'm part of this culture? And so I was sitting there and there were very many um, different organizations, but more so young people of African descent. And it just really was an eye opener. So what I'm going to do is on the feature 100 African stories, I'm really going to try and seek out stories from people of African descent just to try and see if we can create a cohesion because I think that's really important. And, <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop saying that. What did I do in Dakar? First and foremost, I had this really cool drink called Bisap, which is a West African drink. I do not think I had this in Accra, but anyway. So it's hibiscus and ginger and it's so refreshing and it's so yummy. I went to a place called Le Patio, which is a club. I had so much fun there, of course. I went to a restaurant by the beach. It's called Sharky's. Had tons of fun there as well. And the fish was glorious. And if you know me, I'm not a fish person because I am petrified of food poisoning if people don't cook their fish right. But I really, really enjoyed fish in, in Dakar. Um, my final day there, we took a trip to Gori Island, which was a huge hub for slave trade back in the day. It was really heavy for me yeah it was it's it's a heavy trip but it's necessary for us to know about different african countries history and even that trip i ended up asking on my instagram in school just 
if you went to school on the African continent, did you learn history of other African countries or not? Nah? Or did you only learn about those that surrounded you? Because looking back, I'm like, we learned, because I went to high school in Botswana and I love history, but I learned, understandably, I was in Southern Africa. So I learned a lot of South African history with apartheid being um, the focal points. A bit about Botswana history, which is strange because I was in Botswana. But that was about it. We learned a lot about German history. Um, and when I was in primary school in Kenya, obviously learned about Kenyan history, but not really deep fundamental history. Perhaps because we were in primary school, so maybe they were going to give it to us in doses, but still I think we could have learned more. Yeah, and a bit of uh, Ugandan history. But I just think that on the continent, we need to do more in terms of education and learning about both the country we live in's history but also other african countries and judging from people's comments on my instagram yeah we didn't learn much about other african countries thank god for the internet now like you can play catch up but i was challenging myself during this trip to really be in the moment and not focus on oh i have to record stories for legally clueless or i have to get this work done I really wanted to absorb the experiences and really just make memories. So I even didn't go shopping. The only thing I bought was like a shaker instrument thing. But um, yeah, I really should have asked the name of the instrument. <laughs> I'm sure it was not called a shaker. But anyway, yeah, I was really trying to be in the moment and not be too much on my phone and stuff like that. So there are many instances where life just passes us by because we're trying to document the experience instead of experiencing the experience. But I also realized during this trip how much of an extreme sport traveling alone as an African woman is. Because of having survived rape, I am very paranoid about my safety when I am alone and even when I'm with other people, but more so when I'm alone. And so whenever I travel, my safety and my paranoia is on overdrive. And sometimes I normally think, Adele, this is irrational. You need to calm down, let your gut down a bit. But this trip showed me that me being paranoid about my safety was actually a good thing. So the night I arrived, I found out that I was going to be giving an opening speech at this regional meeting. So I worked on the speech in my room and then I was like, well, I need to print it out so that I can rehearse. And if I'm allowed to go up with notes, then go up with notes. So it's about 11.30 p.m. I go downstairs to the business center in the hotel and I print, everything is great. And when I'm coming out, I see this white guy standing facing the wall. And I remember, and this is where intuition comes to play, yeah? Because my intuition was like, what's this guy reading on the wall? Like, there's literally no poster, no nothing. There's no sign. What the heck is he doing facing the wall? But the thought came really quickly and went. And he turns and he starts talking to me. And the conference I was at was actually really big. So I wasn't aggressive or anything. Obviously, my paranoia levels were like bubbling. But at this point, I thought, oh, maybe he's part of the youth delegation. We weren't too many youth members at this meeting. Anyway, so he's like, oh, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. I'm polite. I say I'm from Kenya. And then I ask, are you part of the African descent conference? And he says, no. Immediately, all the alarms in my body go off. So this guy starts saying, oh, let's go for whiskey. So then I'm like, oh, crap. Okay, 
I need to get out of the situation. So I'm like, no, you know, as you can see, I, I have a lot of work to do. And I'm showing him my papers, like I'm waving them in the air. And at this time, the hotel is pretty empty because, again, it's now probably minutes to midnight. He's just keeps insisting, let's go for whiskey. I'm like, no, I'm being very um, polite. And we get to the lift area, which is near the reception. In hindsight, I should have remained at the reception because at least there, the workers behind, you know, at the reception, at the concierge, like at least there are people there. But I think I was on flight mode. You know, you have fight or flight. I was on flight mode. I quickly hit the lift and because I was staying on the third floor. And then the lift opened up. I jump into the lift. This guy jumps in as well. Now I'm like, oh, crap. Then he hits fourth floor. So I'm like, okay, so um, he's not going to my floor. In the lift, he starts trying to grab my hand and telling me, let's go for whiskey. I won't get this chance again. So I'm like, bruh, I don't even know you. And you are scaring me right now. Please leave me alone. I want to just go and rehearse my speech. I'm waving my papers around. We get to third floor. I jump right out because I'm like, well, he'll keep going to fourth floor. Wrong. He jumps out as well. Now I'm like, crap. On this floor, obviously because of the time, there's literally no one. I'm trying to do the math. Like, okay, maybe I shouldn't walk towards my room because then he'll know where my room is. Maybe I should walk like down the other corridor. But then what if it's a dead end? And he's trying to hold my hand still, guys. He's still trying to like grab my wrist. So I'm freaking out. I'm... Oh, like I didn't have a SIM card, so I was using the internet to like communicate with my husband and stuff. So I open up WhatsApp, start calling my husband on loudspeakers so that this guy, the stranger, can hear a ringtone and get scared and leave me. That still wasn't working. He's still trying to reach out for my wrist. And then I tell him, okay, please, sir, please go and enjoy your night. Right now, you're terrifying me. I said, you're terrifying me or you're petrifying me, something like that. Because at this point, I was shaking. So I don't even know what he said because I turned and I bolted for my room. And I have never got into the room so fast and like pushed the door. And it was those heavy doors, pushed the door in, like locked the chain, those extra bolt locks that you have. And I was so petrified, guys. The next day, I kept looking over my shoulder because I was like, is this guy still in this hotel? That could have really gone left. Like, long story short, that could have really gone left. And on top of that, it left me, like, on edge a bit. Luckily, like, the youth delegation were so nice. Like, everyone was just good people. So they did make me feel a lot safer. But at the end of the day, I'm like, is this man still in the hotel? I don't know, man. Like, it's just, honestly, it, the only sentence that sums it up is that it's such an extreme sport to be traveling alone as a, an African woman or a black woman. It's, it's an extreme sport. Whew. Anyway, in better news, though, in better news. So you all know how I love The Moth. The Moth is a, is a storytelling NGO, basically. I was part of their global community program um, sometime last year. Went for a storytelling boot camp, you could call it. Learned effective ways to tell stories. And I love the Moth family. They are so awesome. And they're the reason why I was in New York last month to perform at the Moth's main stage. Well, the good news is the Moth is coming home to Nairobi. I am so excited. This is going to be their second time having a Moth main stage in Nairobi. And I will be hosting it. 
So it's going to be happening on the 12th of November at 7 p.m. And it's on gender equity. So there's going to be storytellers telling stories under the theme of taking stands. So it's true stories of women and girls. Now tickets are 1,500 Kenya shillings. And I will put the link to where you can get your tickets, which is on mook.com. I'll put it in the caption though, because I would really love to see you there. And I really, on top of that, want you to experience the awesomeness that is the moth. It really was one of those places that made me understand that storytelling is such a powerful tool. It really connects us as human beings. I mean, even for you, when you listen to 100 African stories on this podcast, you just learn a lot about even yourself. You see yourself in some of these stories. It's, yeah, I want you to experience it live. So make sure you come. And if you're not in Nairobi, please send anyone you know in Nairobi to come and experience it on your behalf. <laughs> so I'll put the link in the caption though. But speaking of 100 African stories and me being in New York, Good People at the Moth allowed me to share my performance in New York at the Moth main stage. So this was a story that I worked on during the storytelling global community workshop run by the Moth that I went to last year. I had always wanted to write about my late mom, but because of how heavy my grief was and still is, I found it very difficult to do that. So I remember the first, <laughs> the first time, because you're divided into um, small groups during this workshop, the first time I started writing about the story and working on it, the tears, you guys, and not a tea. It wasn't those pretty tears that, you know, your makeup is still intact. It was like snot dripping from your nose, eyes going red type of tears. And the facilitator from the moth for my group was just there like, keep going, keep going. And I really appreciate that because working on this particular story was very therapeutic for me. I feel like it really allowed me to share a very painful thing I was experiencing. Yeah, I'm so nervous. To <laughs> I'm rattling all because I'm so nervous to share this performance with you guys. My God, if you could see me now, I'm black, but I'm blushing. <laughs> like my skin is so hot. A hundred African stories. There is no proper life that you live in university as a musician. If I constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself, I'm never going to get anything done. Uh, there was a bit of frustration in between all of that. I've been breaking my back for this company. Therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy. Stories from Africa. Please welcome Adele Onyango. My mother was an accountant by training, and she knew how to be a best friend to my sisters who loved math and science, and to me who loved poetry, which you'd assume is not an accountant's first love. But she would spend hours reading poetry with me. This was a lady who, whenever I'd tell her I love her, she would respond by saying, I'll love you until the end of time. I went to primary school in Nairobi, Kenya, and one day at school, I was about nine years old, during break time, a kid in school came up to me and said, oh, your mom has cancer, 
you know she's going to die, right? I immediately started crying hysterically. I knew my mom had cancer. She spoke about it in the media and in the school circles to raise awareness on this disease. But she carried it like it was a flu. So this was the first time that I was faced with the reality of this disease could rob me of my mom. My big sister went to the same school, and she also doubled up as my bodyguard. And so she saw the commotion and came and confronted the kid. Later that night, because in primary school there are no secrets, my mom found out about the break time fiasco, and she sat us all down, and she told us that she was going to be okay, and that we mustn't listen to anyone but her when it came to matters of her health. Over the next few months, my mom went through treatment, and sometimes I could see it was taking a toll on her. But she never once cried about it in front of me. She always had this deep smile as if to say everything was going to be okay. So in turn, I never cried about it. I didn't want her to think that her situation was breaking me. And besides, if she wasn't crying, then I shouldn't. Sometimes it was tough, like on my 10th birthday, we celebrated it in hospital because mom had been admitted, which was different from what would normally happen where my mom would buy two packets of eclair sweets, a cake, bring them to school, and then her, my teacher, my classmates, and I would sing happy birthday. This time around, I was surrounded by gray walls, green scrubs, the strong smell of medicines, and nurses who were singing happy birthday, but if you look closely, they were just counting down to the end of their shift. I wanted to cry for me. I wanted to cry for my mom. But she wasn't crying, and she was the one who was admitted, so I didn't. And that began the pattern. I didn't cry when she was puking because of the chemotherapy. I didn't cry when the cancer came back a second and a third time. But even through all of that, she was still there for me. She was there when, in campus, I started an open mic night where poets and musicians would come and perform. She never once missed any show. She was there when I got my first job as a radio presenter and guided me through my contract. And once she saw exactly how much I was going to be making, assigned me a bill in the house, and I had to pay for the home Wi-Fi. One Saturday morning, when I was about three years into my radio presenter job, I was going to try yoga for the very first time. I was on the stairway getting ready to leave with my bag full of everything I was told one needs for yoga. Suddenly, my sister got out of her room and she was on the phone. She was crying and she kept saying no over and over and over again. She didn't need to tell me. I knew my mom was dead. I went back into my room and dropped my yoga bag and picked up my duvet. And I went down to the living room to wait for the influx of people who would be coming to say sorry to us. This time around, I didn't cry because I didn't want my sisters to worry about me, the youngest, the baby. I'd noticed that every time that I'd start to cry, they would get much more emotional, and cry ten times harder. And I carried this fight on for six years, a fight to appear strong and appear okay. Sometimes I'd cry when I was alone and when I was at work, but I could control my tears and stop them when I needed to. 
In my culture, after the funeral, one must have a memorial, which is a small graveside mass where you unveil the cross or the tombstone. It's a very serious occasion, so very many WhatsApp groups were opened to talk about different things from, will we cook for ourselves or hire a caterer? Will we hire a choir or not? My sisters and I were responsible for the grief. We basically had to make it look good, which meant we had to get flowers, flower pots, and the tombstone. We got beautiful white swan-shaped flower pots and filled them with flowers that didn't need much watering because the gardener at home is very forgetful. And we got a big, beautiful black marble tombstone that shimmered every time the sunlight caught it. This tombstone needed to be inscribed with a poem or a quote. Now, in my family, I am the family-appointed wordsmith. Something about me being a poet and working in radio makes my family think I'm good with words. So I had to cloak my mother's legacy and what she meant to us in four lines, and I had two weeks to do this. So the first time I tried to write this poem, I took my favorite notebook and I sat upright at my dining table and I switched off all my phones and I began to write. But I'd cancel off all the sentences before I even finished them. After about 10 minutes of doing this, I realized, okay, maybe I'm just not in the right mood today. So I stopped. The second time I tried to write this poem, again I took my favorite notebook This time I thought maybe I should sit somewhere where I'm more comfortable, my bed. So I got into bed and I began to write. And one word in, tears started hitting my notebook. I shut my eyes to try and trap the tears in, but it was like they weren't listening to the small voice in my head that was commanding them back to where they came from. It was like my tears were rebelling against me. So very different from any time I'd cried before. At this point, I wasn't just crying. I was letting out a huge wail. I was very exhausted, and I clenched my fists and tried to hold my breath so that I could suffocate the wail. And my mind was full of different thoughts. Why is this so painful? Is this what weakness feels like? What if my neighbors hear me? What if my husband comes home early and this freaks him out? I opened my eyes and I could feel just how puffy my eyes had gotten. And my throat was dry and I was drained. But what was interesting is I felt stronger and a huge sigh of relief. And it was almost like the tears had cleared what was stopping me from seeing the words. The words that my mom would always tell me when I'd tell her, I love you. She would always say, I love you until time stands still. So those are the words on her tombstone. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. So that was my performance in September in New York at the Mont's main stage. I was so nervous. And get this, we were four storytellers. We got to the performance space. And that's when I found out I was going to be the first performer of the night. 
So the nerves were on overdrive. But I'm incredibly proud of myself. And as I told you in other, I think, two episodes back, during the intermission, my late mom's favorite song, Pata Pata, played. How crazy is that? Yup. And it always plays, man. It also played in Dakar. We were in a cab after day one when we gave our speeches during the opening and the song played again. Guys, it's so freaky. It's crazy. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed that performance and I hope to see you at the Moth main stage happening right here in Nairobi for the second time on the 12th of November. If you check out the caption of this episode, I have a link to the tickets It's 1500 Bob. It's going to be happening at the Kenya National Theater, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. I'm going to be hosting. And of course, the theme is Taking Stands. It's all about stories of people who are seeking gender equity. So which is also something that I'm very passionate about. So I really hope to see you there. Thank you so much for loving and listening to Legally Clueless. I truly appreciate it. Join our tribe on Instagram at Legally Clueless Podcast. And that's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.